2: That it was very covert. It was like those cans of peaches that you peel off the top little like metal part.
3: Well, the tab was kind of stuck down and I was really fighting with it.
2: Oh weird. What are you drinking?
3: Uh this is one I have never had. This is a blue blaze alt beer amber ale. Oh
2: Hmm. interesting. What brewery?
3: I think blue blaze is the brewery. I think it's this is a I think this is a local South Carolina, North Carolina brewery. It's really good.
2: Okay, cool. And then of course. Uh, my ride or die, Mr. Will of the Thrill.
4: That I say greetings and salutations.
2: Oh, nice. What are you drinking? This is
4: also one I haven't had before. Comes to us from offshoot beer. It is the relax, hazy New England IPA.
2: Excellent. And he was trying to explain to me the can and I wasn't getting the joke, but apparently it's like. A- you, you won't- oh, Go ahead guy on a raft and then like it looks like he's having a good time and then like underneath the water there's a shark.
4: Yes, very much picture the cover of the film Jaws where you have someone on the surface of the water and beneath the surface is a shark clearly ascending towards that individual. So,
3: it's a bit of a play on that.
2: Nice. Do we have any news to catch up on? I feel like we had deaths, didn't we? Um, Not
4: I-
3: the I- only one, the only one I can think of recently, it, it it was only musical on the periphery. That would be somebody uh, L.D., you're, you may not even be familiar with. I, well, I know you are. That would be the professor, John Clayton.
4: Yeah. Ugh. He wasn't that he, old either.
3: Le, no, he wasn't. I think he was in his mid-late 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, long-time ESPN reporter, fantastic reporter, super well-sourced, intelligent, uh, always got his facts straight and usually had stuff first, and just uh, which is how he earned the nickname. But the musical component is that he was in one of the five or six best Ever this is Sports Center commercials and what, what it was was it it was he was doing like a stand up talking about something happened with happening with some NFL team and as soon as his shot ends he steps away from the set and you see that he's really in his own bedroom which is like littered with typical like teenage stuff he then reaches back behind his ha- his ha- uh, his head undoes a bun and has reveals like hair down to his butt takes off his jacket in and, and there's a Slayer T-shirt underneath. It. So it was just it was very much a play off of his very straight laced image and the end of it he's eating like chinese noodles out of a box and screams hey mom done with my segment as he's rocking out the slayer but and i think when it comes to espn he's kind of an employee
4: number two kind of guy isn't he
3: sort of yeah Yeah. for sure but
2: yeah excellent at his job
3: and just a, a i mean i think he had been there for 20 years absolute mainstay and so he'll he'll certainly be missed. Yeah, tremendous analyst amazing yeah no you
2: know barbara morrison who was a jazz singer did pass away it looks like three days ago as um, we record
3: obviously on saturday
2: yeah as we record it was about three days ago so she was a uh, a legendary jazz singer barbara morrison passed away at the age of 72 um i don't have a lot of details but I did post an article on our socials. And by the way, I do want to take this time to thank you guys on our social media. We got such an amazing response to the stuff that we've been posting lately. You guys, our fans rock. Like uh, just the absolute interaction that we get with you guys is just so much fun. Like posting quizzes and like asking questions and getting a ton of amazing answers. And it looks like the consensus for best soundtrack just like looking at people's comments looks like people love greece
3: yeah that was a standout
2: was more like i think four or three or four people wrote in that they loved greece
3: yeah and none of us picked greece i'm shocked you didn't pick that
2: because i don't see it as a soundtrack i see it as a musical that's right. the way i
4: saw it too and therefore thought it was ineligible for submission
2: yeah so i so you know but hey People are engaging. We love that, you guys. And uh, go over and check out our TikTok. You have to go look at my weird face, but uh, <laughs> basically, it's just a page of fun facts.
3: Yeah. Oh, I I I thought of one. A soundtrack, another one that we all whiffed on, uh, and and shouldn't have. Uh, FM. FM. The the movie FM. Yeah. I
2: don't even know the movie. How did oh, I? Oh
3: God. I, well, the, the movie is forgettable and and pretty terrible actually, and it follows kind of into the she's the one oh brother category of like i think way more people bought the soundtrack than ever bothered to go see the crappy movie (laughs) although well in a brother's case the movie wasn't crappy but in fm's case it certainly was um no it's tom petty bob seger steely dan just it's like a bunch of just absolute banging 70s classic rock and i i'm embarrassed that i overlooked that one Total
4: Is is that the one with eileen brennan and it's like yes. you know, she works she worked for a radio Brennan's station.
3: Yeah. Yep. 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 Alan I Brennan's f- in that one. I feel like that it's came out. Not about, very good. Yeah, I feel like it's that
4: came great. out the late 70s period with what was it, the fish that saved Pittsburgh and kind of all those <laughs> wacky movies.
2: Yeah. Um I'm trying to see if my instincts was right, and this is the one that I didn't include, but I'm checking the the uh the soundtrack, which was yeah. Uh, the the movie the boat that rocked, but we got it I think in America as Pirate Radio, yeah, and that has Duffy, the Kinks, the Turtles, Martha and the Vandellas, Beach Boys, the Miracles, the Jeff Beck Group, the Who, the Trogs, the Hollies, Paul Jones, the Easy Beats, the like Cream, Jimi Hendrix, Procol Harem. Uh, it has an amazing soundtrack, and it's a I liked the movie. Will they they used a shooting device that. <laughs> Made it look like the boat was rocking the whole time you're watching the movie. So like, it feels like you have sea legs and Will has vertigo and could not handle it and had to leave like 10 minutes into the movie because he was so, like, I can't do this.
4: So what I've learned is when it comes to movies and and non-steady cam, I'm fine if I can see the edges of the screen. So viewing at home is no problem. But if I'm in a theater and like, you know, it will be pointed out, I'm at a loss there. I can start to feel a bit queasy. So I had to excuse myself.
2: So we've never seen something like, he didn't see Blair Witch, the, the 2016 Blair Witch. Oh,
4: no, I tried to. I got sick and had to walk out. No, you didn't. The new Blair Witch or the yeah, original Blair Witch? I
2: took myself to go see that.
4: Oh, no, I thought you meant the original Blair Witch. I'm sorry.
2: No, no. Okay. No. We didn't even know each other when Blair Witch came out. Um, That's true. 2016 Blair Witch. Um, and then we've never seen any of the born ultimatum movies. So anything with like a shaky cam is just a no go in the theaters. I can go take myself, but you know, I feel bad because I want Will to be there with me <laughs> when we see a movie, but small screen, small screen, fine, but big but, screen with that. No, but, but pirate radio has a, an extremely underrated soundtrack. It, it's awesome.
4: And, it's and it stars of- Bill Nye.
2: Yes. Yes, it does. Who is a freaking national treasure. He's not even our national. He's other national your words are hard on the weekends anyway (laughs) um so uh, a beautiful segue here uh we have a sponsor this week as always and that is with better help so will would you like to take away take it away take it away will would you like to take it away
4: I would, because let's be honest, we all need a little help sometimes, and this is something I know for a fact. I was one of those people that was really trying to do it all. You try to work, better yourself physically... Maybe you're reading, maybe you're doing some self-help kind of stuff. Well, the real self-help is actually taking care of your mental health, and that's where BetterHelp is such a successful program for me and millions of others. So what is BetterHelp? BetterHelp is an online counseling service that matches you up with a licensed therapist from the comfort of your own home. You can talk to them really about anything. Sometimes there are big issues, sometimes there are small issues, and sometimes, as they say, you're just not okay. And that's okay. Okay. The good thing about BetterHelp is you can get someone customized to fit your needs and matched with a licensed therapist within 48 hours. It is absolutely outstanding. When I went to BetterHelp, I was really having a tough time communicating. I didn't know who to talk to or what to talk to them about. And I'm telling you, this was a game changer for me. It made me feel more connected, more conscious of my relationships. I started feeling better about work and other things I was doing in life. And overall, it gives you the specific help you need for whatever is eating away at you. And the best part is it's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and it's also much more convenient. I live in Los Angeles, folks. It takes an hour to get anywhere. So the thought of driving to an office, maybe after work or on a break from work, sitting in traffic, finding parking, No, it's just not going to happen. So thankfully, I'm able to communicate with my therapist from home and put my life back on track. As I said, it was a game changer for me, and it could be a game changer in your life as well. And that's why we have a special offer here just for our Rock and Roll Heaven listeners. You can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at BetterHelp by going to betterhelp.com backslash rock heaven so it's betterhelp.com and the code is rock heaven so thank you again BetterHelp, for sponsoring this podcast and helping me out better help folks better life
2: yes and um we would like to say ta- to say mazel tov to his therapist who just welcomed their what first child
4: uh third i believe
2: i was way off <laughs> that's okay well congratulations <laughs> um, <laughs> All right, so um I want you guys to buckle up, Buttercup. This is the weird stuff all happening at one time episode. Because the thing is, guys, when we hit the next episode, it pretty much goes downhill from here. So I kind of wanted to, it, it sort of worked out the way that everything bananas happened pretty much in like an episode time frame. And so well, I'm going to jump into those today. So yes, Mr.
4: Will, you sound... I was little... going to say, that's a bit of a surprise because up to this point, his career has been so straightforward, so smooth, no issues, no problems. I, I, I for one, am shocked. Clutching my pearls.
2: Well, clutch them real hard because we're going to get into some bumpy road, kids. <gasps> you should have used the picture of the packing peanuts uh, this week. Yes, Ben
3: Swoon. <laughs>
2: Right. Yes,
4: that that is our official Slap Nuts logo. So I must preserve that for those uh, outings.
2: Yes. And I created a special one that looks like we're in a padded cell. And the handwriting is a serial killer. So. Slap Nuts. Well, this is not a slap nuts, but it's almost on the verge of being a slap nuts with how crazy some of the stuff is. Okay, so quick overview (laughs) of 1985 before we hop over to 1986. In March of that year, he actually got his own likeness unveiled at Madame Tussauds Wax Museum in London, and he appeared at the unveiling, and the crowd there was massive. And it's funny because we're going to talk about the same action having negative consequences later on in the podcast, but this time uh, he was swarmed and jumped on the top of his limousine and waved to all his fans and did like a little dance move. Does that sound reminiscent of something that might happen a little later?
4: I think I know where you're going with
2: this. Yeah. The, if, if you don't know, the same thing happens at his trial later on. So, but people this time ate it up, loved it, thought it was amazing. And like I spoke to you before, he wrote and recorded and released We Are the World, which helped the U.S. for Africa nonprofit that was supposed to facilitate aid to countries in Africa. And that whole episode was our last proper episode. Episode 13 was specifically just about We Are The World. So if you aren't caught up with that yet, go back, listen to it. It was great. But are you guys ready for a fun story? Fun story. Fun story. Michael was never really known to be able to pull off elaborate Pranks Very well, like when he was younger and he was, you know, living in hotels with his brothers, they were prank kings like, you know, putting buckets on top of doors and having them pour on people or throwing paper bags full of water onto the street below like, you know, kids stuff, but like as he got older, Michael wasn't that good at pulling off like elaborate pranks so he had an idea, and he called up normal winner and told him that he wanted to cause a commotion during the televised Grammy presentation in February. It had been decided that Quincy and Michael would accept the award If We Are the World won record of the year, accompanied by some of the other participants of the record. And uh, can I just tell you guys that um, I did finally hear back from one person that I reached out to, which was the documentarian for Huey and... And uh, he he basically said that Huey doesn't really talk to the press unless it's about a specific moment in his life or a project that he's dealing with in the future. So apparently, and I didn't know this, and I don't know, he didn't say, don't say anything about it, but it looks like there might be a Back to the Future, the musical happening.
3: What? Yeah, I knew that Huey was working on some sort of uh, musical about his own music one of those sort of jukebox musical kind of things yeah. Huey Lewis and the news songs.
2: yeah he's got he's got a show so he's he's doing the releases of his album a back to the future musical and his own musical so that's what he's going to be taught like that's what he was talking about so like i completely understand folks and like and,
3: that. Uh, and of course with huey and the other thing is he's he suffers from many years and it's that doing interviews i think is a little bit laborious for him because he he can't hear very well
2: i can only imagine
3: Depe- depending know. on the de- depending on the day
2: i mean he's he's been in the music industry for like 50 years now yeah something like that so yeah yep. I, I would assume that there would be some sort of like olfactory uh damage done but well but no
3: his his is, his is specifically Menyer's. Which I don't think they exactly know. Will you may know a little about it. I don't think they actually know what causes its onset.
4: There's not a lot about. I think he had surgery. Is that or was that his throat? I know he had some vocal issues as well.
3: Yeah, but the, yeah, I think that was his throat. But I, I, yeah. I think mignures is kind of a thing that's still a little bit of a mystery. They don't 100 percent know why it starts or how to treat it real well, like they do steroids and various other things. But it just like your hearing, your hearing just just comes and comes and goes, and it's got usually gone yeah it's, it's very yeah.
4: inconsistent yeah
2: yeah so I, I i reached out to a ton of people to talk to, to talk to them about the you know 37th anniversary of we are the world and uh huey's documentarian was the only one to get back to me so yeah i'm bummed out about that but yeah it's past now so it's in the past i've let it go so it's not known whether his intention was to do so, but it seems like Michael wanted to steal a little bit of Quincy's thunder during the acceptance speech. His plan was to get a female teenager to run out on stage from the wings and jump him as he stood next to Quincy. Uh, the, then Bill Bray would be ready and waiting to pull the girl off Michael, who would then act surprised and frazzled. Since the Grammys are televised internationally, the world would witness this mad scene. And as you can guess, all of this actually happened. (laughs) Um, A female publicist who worked at Norman's office found a teenager who she felt was savvy enough to pull off the hoax, and she was hired for the job. The night of those awards, those involved in the trickery held their breath as We Are the World was announced by the presenters who were Sting and some other no-named weirdo. Um, Moving on. You know...
4: Why do I think was you it, actually know the
3: name? Was it uh, was it a drummer? Uh, perhaps of a British band?
2: Perhaps? I mean, it's got to be some hack. I don't know his name. R- rhymes with Bill Follins? I mean, I don't have it written down here, but maybe. Will Swallens?
3: Hmm. Huh. Gil
2: Follins? That. <laughs> So, Jill Popollin. So, we are the world one record of the year, and Quincy, Kenny, and Steven went on stage. And this is Stevie Wonder. Stevie Wonder were on stage with Michael as Quincy gave his speech. Michael, you can actually see in the video, Michael starts looking off to the side nervously because apparently the girl was having issues getting through the people, like the technicians and the producers and the member of the press who had gathered in the wings to check everybody else out on stage. But before the girl knew what happened, the speech was over with and she had missed her moment. It didn't work. Michael wanted to know what happened. and He said, I was standing there waiting and waiting and nothing. When Frank explained what happened, Michael just started laughing. He said, I guess the joke's on me. He said, I couldn't even concentrate on what was going on because I was waiting for this girl to come out and jump on me. And she never did. Quincy said, I was squirming so much that he thought I had to go to the bathroom. The next time we'll have to do it. Better, Michael said with a wink. He also undertook another operation to have his nose made even slimmer. This is his fourth nose job. He also wanted the surgeon to create a cleft in his chin. And when psychologists actually speculate that it was Michael's narcissistic side that dictated that he have a cleft carved into his chin, Michael obviously wanted to become something more enchanting, something that he thought was a reflection of his own image.
4: See, that's odd because I don't know if he checks a lot of the boxes for narcissism. I mean, maybe I'm wrong about
3: that. You have to be a little bit of something to state as your goal when you put a record out. I want this to be the biggest selling album in the history of the world. I'm angry I only won two Grammys. I should I should have won more. I mean, maybe that's competitive and maybe, maybe that's a little bit of being in love with yourself. I just,
2: always, I just always assumed that narcissism, and I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm always willing to accept it if I'm wrong, but like I always thought narcissism was something that reflected from the outside in as opposed to the inside out, as opposed to like... <laughs> You can be, you you could strive to be as beautiful as you possibly can on the outside with narcissism. I didn't realize that it was like an internal thing.
4: Yeah, and I thought it was. And I thought that vanity is external, but narcissism is internal. That, that was my take on it again. Very amateur opinion here.
2: It was after Michael's operation to have the cleft in his chin that he began to wear a surgical mask with a black fedora and sunglasses. Like if he did this in 2020, would not have been weird. He was ahead of his time. Like remember the surgical mask? Like I remember- the times where he was wearing the surgical masks
3: absolutely was that just to cover up the recent plastic surgery
2: yeah well the press speculated that he was obsessed with catching germs reminiscent of like howard hughes had a fixation with health issues he would constantly wash his hand to the point where like his fingers would be raw you know it could have been uh, any number of things honestly like he was always one for disguises i think i actually point out in episode like 15 or 16 about his disguises and so he always was the kind of person who would wear something that would say, please don't look at me. But it would it would be like, please don't look at me. Do not look at me. Everybody pay attention. Don't look at me. That kind and, of thing.
4: And when he was postulatizing, he'd have like weird beards and other accoutrements. Is that correct?
2: Yes. Uh, when he was not wearing a surgical mask, he could actually be seen in public wearing a hairy gorilla mask with furry and beady eyes. And I think Jay Randy actually said it best when he said that Michael was a great paradox. He was as much of a public show off as he was a recluse. So those were the big things that happened other than, you know, the American Music Awards and the Grammys. And Michael also began production on something that would be released in 1986. And that was Captain EO.
4: Ah, yes.
2: Okay. Now, do we want to have the discussion about Captain EO before I discuss it or before I go into, you know detail about it or after I go into detail about it.
4: I think it might be good to provide a little bit of context for those who may not be as familiar with the film as we are.
2: Okay. So this is from the book, Michael Jackson's Moonwalk. Captain EO came about because the Disney studio wanted me to come up with a new ride for the parks. They said they didn't care what I did as long as it was something creative. Then I had this big meeting with them and, oh, during the course of the afternoon, I told them that Walt Disney was a hero of mine and I was very interested in Disney's history and philosophy. I wanted to do something with them that Mr. Disney himself would have approved. I have read a number of books about Walt Disney and his creative empire, and it was very important to me to do things as he would have done them. In the end, they actually asked him to do a movie, and of course, he agreed. Because, you know, Michael did truly love film. He told him that he would like to work with George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, and it turned out that Steven was busy, so George brought in Francis Ford Coppola, And that was the production team. He flew up to San Francisco a couple of times to visit George at his place, which of course is Skywalker Ranch. I would love to go there to see the artwork. I think it'd be phenomenal. It'd be awesome. And gradually they came up with a scenario for a type of short film, which would incorporate the recent advance in 3D technology. They wanted it to look and feel like the audience was in a spaceship along for the ride. The story itself is about transformation and the way that music helped change the world. Jay uh george came up with the name which is actually greek for the dawn it is a story about a young man who goes on a mission to a dystopian planet run by an evil queen he is entrusted with the responsibility to bring light and beauty it's a celebration of good over evil and if you haven't seen captain eo it's actually on youtube now like the original 1986 film and i watched it several times i remember so, we watched it together yes so are you guys ready for a captain eo fun fact one., uh, do you guys know who Doug Benson is?
4: The comic, right?
2: Yes, uh, best, best week we,
4: best year ever. best week ever. Yeah.
2: like you know, I love the film in the decade. Uh, but he also did a documentary called Super High Me. Yeah, he's done a lot of stuff. He is actually the the orange dancer in the movie. <laughs> so if you guys know about Doug Vincent, his career, and then watch Captain EO and watch him as the orange dancer.
4: Which you pointed out to me and I couldn't shake that
2: image at all. You, it, you cannot, it's, it's like the weirdest thing and that's coming from me. <laughs> now, this whole process just reinforced all the positive feelings Michael had about working in the film industry and it made him realize that he really felt like his future lied in film. Uh, he especially liked being in front of a 35 millimeter camera. He used to hear his brother say that I'll be glad when the shoot is over with. And he couldn't understand why he was using it as a learning experience. So he would talk to everybody in the process, the the screenwriters, the lighting guys, the cameramen, the direct, like anything that he could learn about the film industry. Michael was a sponge. And then the filming for Captain EO began on July 15th, 1985. Captain EO made full use of its 3D effects. The action on the screen extended into the audience, including asteroids, lasers, laser impact, smoke effects, and star fields that were filmed that filled the theater. These effects resulted in a 17 minute film costing an estimated 30 million to produce. At the time, it was the most expensive film ever produced on a per minute basis, averaging out to be about $1.76 million per minute.
4: Which is insane if you, I mean, watch the film and production values, Pretty good, all things considered.
2: Yeah, I never. We we only got to see it after he passed away. Like they brought it back, right. but we'll talk about that in a minute. So the 2010 version did not include the in-theater laser and starfield effects. It did use utilize hydraulics previously used for Honey, I Shrunk the Audience to make the seats shake along with Captain EO's spaceship, as well as LED floodlights, which were new to that theater. The hydraulics were also used for the bass-heavy musical numbers and the seats bounced to the beat of the Jackson songs. Honey I Shrunk the Audience, Hidden Water Sprayers were employed when Hooter sneezed, and the attraction's leg ticklers were also used for the Supreme Leader's Whip Warrior. Now, the show's orchestral score was composed by James Horner, with additional score performed by Tim Truman, while the area and pre-show music was written by Richard Bellis. Two new songs would appear in the film. The first one was We Are Here to Change the World, which was not originally released. It was actually released close to his passing, which was 2004, as a part of Michael Jackson, The Ultimate Collection. But this version was a shorter edited version of the full-length song. The second was an earlier mix of Another Part of Me, which appeared on Jackson's 1987 album Bad in remix form and was subsequently released as a single. Uh, Denise Williams covered We're Here to Change the World on her As Good As It Gets album in 1988, just for fun. Now, in 1996, several years after the attraction originally opened, Captain EO made its only television appearance on MTV, albeit a downconverted 2D version It hasn't aired since, nor has it been officially issued on home video, but like I said, bootlegs do exist, like you can find it on YouTube. After the death of Michael Jackson on the 25th of June 2009, Captain EO regained popularity on the internet. For several years, a small group of fans had petitioned Disney to bring back the attraction, and Jackson's death had brought the campaign to a peak. Soon after, Disney officials were seen in Disneyland and the Magic Eye Theater reportedly giving a private screening of Captain EO to determine if it could be shown again. On September 10th, Disney CEO Bob Iger said, there aren't plans to bring back Captain EO at this time. We're looking into it. It's the kind of thing that if we did it, it would get a fair amount of attention and we want to make sure we do it right. Then on December 18th, 2009, Disney announced that Captain EO would return to Tomorrowland at Disneyland beginning in February 2010. Social and print media manager Heather hurst Riviera from the Disneyland Resorts confirmed on Disney Parks blog, stating that Honey, I Shrunk the Audience would be closing. That attraction hosted its final public showing in the Magic Eye Theater at midnight on January 4th, 2010 to make way for Captain EO's return. <laughs> All right, before I play the song, let's just talk about it for a second. It's bananas. <laughs> this whole movie is crazy because it's Michael Jackson with a bunch of Muppets in space. Then they go to a planet and they find this supreme leader. And it's this w- weird woman like hanging from wires played by Angelica Houston. And he frees her with the power of music and she becomes pretty. And as Angelica Houston, she gets about 10 and a half seconds of screen time. And that's it. That is the whole 17 minutes. It's quite a ride. It really is. Travis, do you have any input with the uh, Captain EO? Uh, no. <laughs> okay, so uh, like I do, uh, wh- what I'll do is I will post the entire Captain EO on, uh, I will post the link to Captain EO on our social media so you guys can check it out. It is worth the 17 minutes. Uh, it's not, not very good quality. Like it's, it probably best on your computer because I think if you put it on your big screen, it's not going to look great. So I would say watch it on the computer, but worth watching it. 17 minutes. It's got some decent music. It's ridiculous. It's Michael Jackson, like, you know, hanging out with ridiculous Muppets, but you know, it's fun. Hey
4: LD, sorry to uh, pop in here, but we are going to take a short break for our sponsors.
2: And we're back. All right. So back to Michael Jackson. What we're going to do right now is we're actually going to listen to the songs from Captain EO. And this is another part of me. Have fun. And we are back. What's our thoughts on those that song?
3: I think it's super catchy. It is a bit of an earworm.
2: It is. Yeah. Kid, like, kid,
3: for sure, kid, a, a very it's a very catchy song.
2: It is a very catchy song, and I think that's why he did it. Because remember, like Disney Land, Disney World. What's their target audience? Kids. If you can get kids hooked on a song, like I look, I'm 42, and I know that Will knows all the words to all the songs in Encanto because I keep watching it.
4: (laughs) Those are earworms. Oh, my goodness.
2: So, yeah, if if you make something catchy, the kid wants to buy it.
4: Well, it's interesting you mentioned that I, during the song, asked LD, you know, what time frame we're covering because I know for a fact that this song comes up in another Michael Jackson property, but we're not there yet.
2: Well hold your horses kiddo you'll notice that actually didn't sound like it came from a movie it didn't sound like it was a diegetic kind of thing if you actually know the film and that's because it ended up on an album oh that's not what i was referring to but you are correct
4: yeah what were you talking about uh it doesn't come up for another four or five years are you talking about moonwalk yes i am okay well yeah we'll get there
2: we'll get there uh, at the beginning of 1986, he began to work on the follow-up album to Thriller, which would be called Bad. And of course, Michael put himself under a tremendous amount of pressure. He felt the need to top Thriller. like. And if you think about it, that is a massive undertaking. Yeah, um, even at this point. Even at this point, like he's the biggest artist in the world, and he has, he's still smashing records now with Thriller. Like, in the present, he is still smashing records with Thriller. And so he felt like he needed to top it, which according to the book, The Magic, The Madness, The Whole Story, was... At this time in 1986, about 38.5 million copies sold. So that's a, that's a tall order. Now it would be silly that after We Are The World that he actually wanted to retreat from the public. For two and a half years, he actually devoted most of his time to recording the follow-up to Thriller. And I mean that. When I say he retreated from the public view, he actually retreated from the public view. I have read I don't know how many books, I don't know how many articles I've read, but literally this is kind of a black hole blackout kind of time for him. Well,
4: he kind of went from being everywhere, like you said, to completely the opposite direction.
2: Yeah. I mean, he was doing, he was doing, you know, Pepsi ads and he was touring and he was releasing and and then he just kind of took a step back, sat down and worked on this. So why did it take so long to make bad? Well, according to Michael himself, the answer is he and Quincy decided the album should be as close to perfect as humanly possible. When he began to work on the album, he said he taped pieces of paper around his house that said 100 million. And he had one that he would always look at every morning in the bathroom mirror. And as we all know, Michael is a perfectionist and a perfectionist has to take their time. Michael said that in his book, he never tried to pander to fans, that he just wanted to play on the quality of the song because he knew people wouldn't buy junk. He was very clear on thinking that there is a difference between a a number 30 record and a number one record that stays number one for weeks. To him, it had to be good. It had to be perfect. And he didn't believe in racial barriers when it came to music. An album should be for all races and for all tastes in music. Remember, he went after Eddie Van Halen to play guitar on Beat It because he knew he was the best guy for the job. Like, if you want a rock guitarist, you don't go to some rando, you go to the best. And he got the best. And they worked on Bad for years. In the end, it was worth it because they were satisfied with what they had achieved. Before they started recording the album in August of 1986, Michael and Quincy had to choose from 62 songs, which Michael had written. Also, let's take a second to reflect on that. He wrote 62 songs that were in, in, that were in contention for, in the competition for being on this album.
4: And they had to narrow it down to what, 10 to 12, maybe?
2: Yeah. 50% of the battle is just trying to figure out which songs you're going to record. Now, just that's, that being said, he didn't record 62 songs. He had simply written them. And so Quincy said, it was total instincts. You have to do the songs that touch you, the ones that get the goosebumps going. And in the end, eight of the 10 songs on Bad would be written by Michael. One of the songs planned for that album was a Rhythm and Blues song that was intended to be a duet called I Can't Stop Loving You. Michael wanted Barbara Streisand, but she turned him down. He seemed furious saying, I can't believe she would turn me down. Doesn't she know that this is going to be the biggest album in history? Eventually he cooled down and he said, let's get Whitney Houston but Whitney actually rejected him as well. What? Yeah. Frank DeLeo suggested Diana Ross, but Michael said that that might be a bad idea because he and Diana were currently engaged in a little bit of a misunderstanding. Now, <laughs> this is another one of those things where it's just like, yeah, this, I, yeah, okay. Basically what happened was Elizabeth Taylor wanted to have dinner. What this boiled down to was an ego trip between two powerful women that he sadly didn't understand what he was getting into. To make a long story short about the whole thing about Elizabeth Taylor and Diana Ross was basically Michael had invited Elizabeth Taylor to come over for dinner at a restaurant. And then he also invited Diana and you can't put Diana Ross and Elizabeth Taylor in the same room together because of, you know, ego. and then. The same thing happened again, where he invited Diana Ross and Elizabeth Taylor showed up. So it was just like a battle of the egos. So he and Diana and Elizabeth kind of had a tiff. So it was like, and eh, let's just not, let's just not bother Diana for the time being. So he got Sadea Garrett, who ended up being the singer on I Just Can't Stop Loving You. And that would end up being the first single released from Bad. Now. For some reason, Michael actually had his heart super set on recording duets for B.A.D., but plans never seemed to work out for him, which I honestly think is crazy. He's one of the biggest celebrities in the world and in the music industry in this time, and it just seems like people didn't want to record with him. Now, when he was writing the title track, he decided that he wanted to have Prince join him on the recording for it. A couple of years earlier, Warner Brothers had sponsored an afternoon screening of the movie purple rain which we all know stars prince and by the way i'm so sorry that's probably going to be another like 70 part series on my behalf and i'm so 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 very sorry which one prince yeah i got prince oh yeah boy but he, he's not my next one but he is not my next one we are taking we are taking a substantial break from lindley is not gonna do this after, again i'm so this is a lot <laughs> but we're only up
4: to like 20 parts of Michael Jackson. What are you talking about?
2: Gosh, (laughs) it's going to get better, right? And we're we're not even out of the 80s yet. (laughs) We'll get there. Don't worry. Um, (laughs) So, uh, you know, he had been invited to Warner Brothers to watch this movie. And it was basically for Warner Brothers personnel and film critics. And the world wanted to make Prince a movie star. Michael was deeply disappointed that he had not been able to make a strong impression as, as much as Prince had. Like he really saw Prince as a rival in the film industry, not so much the music industry, because people were just kind of handing Prince a star vehicle in Purple Rain. And he just never really felt like he got that opportunity. Of course, he got the whiz, but that was a flop where Purple Rain is kind of like a, um, it's now more like a cult following that people in the mainstream kind of know about.
4: (laughs) But even more so than the whiz or?
2: Yeah, more so than the whiz.
4: It it might have been more culturally, I don't know about culturally relevant, but definitely like you said, more exposure than the Wiz, perhaps.
2: Yeah. So, on the night where he got to go see Purple Rain, he snuck into the theater just as the house lights dimmed and sat in the back row wearing his sequin jacket, and he never took off his sunglasses. About ten minutes before the movie was over, with he got up and walked out. Someone asked Michael what he thought about the film, and he said, "The music's okay, I guess, but I don't like Prince. He looks mean, and I don't like the way he treats women." He reminds me of our relatives. And not only that, that guy can't act. He's not good.
4: <laughs> oh, wow. How do you really feel, Michael? <laughs> yeah. yeah, tell
2: us how you really oh, feel, sir. It's catty, geez. <laughs> Even though Michael didn't like him or his acting or his talent, he said that he knew a duet with Prince would probably generate a lot of interest. Michael was a lot of things and stupid wasn't one of them. Now, Michael tries to concoct a plan that kind of goes awry. The plan was that a month before the single release of Bad was to happen, Frank would plant a story in the tabloids that he and Prince hated each other. Michael's representatives would criticize Prince, and then Prince's friends who would be in on the hoax would also criticize Michael, and basically they would just build this rivalry up between these two massive talents, and then the song would be released. Quincy arranged for Michael to meet Prince, feeling that these two creative geniuses should know one another and see if they even wanted to create something together or not. However, when Michael called Prince and told him about his idea, Prince was not impressed. He said he wanted to hear the tape of the song and Michael sent him one. But after hearing it, Prince decided that he didn't like it and didn't want anything to do with the hoax. And that was the end of that. Huh. Yeah. So this is another second time that Prince and Michael have, you know, been two ships that passed in the night.
4: Well, it sounds like they were trying to manufacture a, a feud and uh, neither of them were going to have it. <laughs>
2: Yeah, exactly. And that's not something that is unknown in Hollywood. Like, you know, people come up with drama all the time. Like, people stage drama. That's kind of a known unknown in Hollywood. The whole feud between, yeah, Joan Crawford, like like what happened between Joan Crawford and Betty Davis? Like, did they uh, actually hate each other? Or was this something that was like set up by the studio?
4: Well, it's the old axiom of you want to have an interesting party, invite two people who don't get along. Um Maybe it's just what Hollywood took to the next level.
2: Yeah, so like making up hopes to create hoopla around whatever project is happening is not like an unknown thing at this time. It was just Prince was just not going to have it. So now before I go on about the recording of the album, I just wanted to take a step back and talk about one really weird thing that I'm pretty sure most Michael Jackson fans have at least heard rumors about. And that is the hyperbaric chamber. Do you guys, have you guys heard about this at all? Have any recollection of it? Very little. I remember it coming up in the context of Michael
4: Jackson, but I'm, I'm curious to hear more because I don't know the full story.
2: When he burned his head on the set of the Pepsi commercial, he saw an oxygen chamber at Brotman Memorial Hospital. This actually was used to help burn victims. The machine is about the size and shape of a casket with a clear plastic top. It encloses the patient in an atmosphere of 100% oxygen and and under, it increases the barometric pressure up to several times the pressure at sea level, basically flooding the body with oxygen. I will go ahead and say, I am not a doctor. The words that I just said mean nothing to me. I understand oxygen because that's what I'm breathing right now. And that is about it. So is it do like not an take... iron lung. Well, you're completely enclosed.
4: Okay. Okay. So
2: whereas like the iron lung, I think has your neck, like goes up to your neck you're completely enclosed in this casket and they're supposed to give pure oxygen okay and' you're supposed guess- to be
3: very regenerative very restorative and uh, you know you're oxygenating your blood which it's good and I know that I know some athletes do it when they're rehabbing from injuries and stuff I have heard of
2: okay so guys this is a great example of like if you want if you know anything about what this actually does to the body please we would rather talk to you guys than google it. <laughs>
4: <laughs> see, see, we are the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast, not the Hyperbaric Chamber podcast. So our knowledge is quite limited in that field.
2: Yes. Now on the Pantheon Network, the Hyperbaric Chamber podcast. With 56 parts on Michael Jackson coming up. Oh, no. Well, it's already written. It's fine. <laughs> so when Steve Hopeland told him that he had a theory that sleeping in the machine could possibly prolong life, Michael became fascinated by it and wanted one for himself. Now, I should say the cost of this thing is about $200,000 in 1986. So, Holy monkey. Yeah. Frank fortunately talked him out of it because honestly, it was a waste of money, but Michael did want to have his picture taken in it. So Frank arranged for Michael to be photographed in the chamber at the hospital and word began to spread that he was interested in the chamber. And the story eventually found its way into the National Geographic, or National Geographic, National Enquirer magazine. When Michael found out about the interest from the magazine, he thought that it would be a very interesting way to keep his name in the papers. Now, at the time, Michael was reading the book, and he absolutely loved this book. And it was about P.T. Barnum and his theories and philosophies. And he wanted his life to be the greatest show on earth. Now, Charles Montgomery, who was a reporter who worked at the Enquirer, found out about the story and was trying to find out more information from Michael's people, but every time he would call to get information, they would put him on hold and then eventually hang up. Frank actually called Charles to give him more information after Michael thought it would be a good idea to do this as a publicity stunt, and John thought that it was pretty harmless, so he went along with it too, and you know, John is his attorney, so... To make the story even more irresistible, he promised a photograph of Michael actually in the chamber, as long as Charles guaranteed to make it the week's cover. He also made Charles promise not to reveal the source of the information, and in the end, Charles Montgomery actually said he didn't know if the story was true or not, but Michael said it was true and his manager said it was true and his doctor verified it. So for Charles, the resources were good enough for him. If it weren't for Michael's team, the the story probably would have died in the tabloids, but they actually figured out a way to get it into the mainstream media. They actually delivered an envelope to Michael Levine's office. Now, Michael was a show business, like a a really good show business publicist at the time. So he got this envelope and found a, a single color transparency Of Michael Jackson lying in the hyperbaric chamber in his street clothes and no shoes. There was no letter, no context, no information, no return address, just this transparency. Wow. Yeah. The picture of Michael hit the inquiry on the 16th of September 1986 is planned, and most people had never even heard of a hyperbaric chamber. So it wasn't common knowledge whether or not this picture could have been a setup or not. Now According to what I've read, patients and medical personnel who actually enter the chamber actually have to wear a special fire-retardant set of clothes due to the high concentration of oxygen, so certainly not street clothes like Michael had been wearing in the photo. The story was picked up in the Times, Newsweek, and practically every other major newspaper in the country. The television and radio shows covered it, and suddenly the words hyperbaric chamber entered the public zeitgeist. And uh, (laughs) another fun fact. Fun fact. Another fun fact. (laughs) <laughs> he never let his family in on the joke. He never told his family that he was going to do this. So it's um, kind of a
4: prank, but...
2: Yeah, he knows how to get his name out there and how to keep it out there. Like, he knows PR spin. And for, doing Go doing good.
4: For those of you playing along at home, the cost, as I calculated in
3: the current day, would be over half a million dollars.
2: Oh, for the hyperbaric for, chamber? For the chamber, yep.
3: It
4: costs
2: over I
3: half think, a million. I think the cost of them has actually come down, and I think you can rent them, if I'm not mistaken.
2: I, I'm only assuming, like... I'm still trying to figure out how. Uh, like, I don't. I'm not a medical professional, obviously. So, like, don't come at me. But I do not understand how pure oxygen can help burn victims. Uh, so, if if anybody can figure that, tell me in layman's terms how that works. Uh, please tell me. I'm waiting.
3: Are you like waiting for one of us? To do- <laughs> <laughs> you, you might. You might be waiting a while in that case. No, you said. Sorry. I'm sorry. I thought I heard medical expert. I mean, I've played doctor in my shed before, but. um
2: So in the end, Michael knew how to spin a story, knew how to keep his name in the papers. And so there was another gimmick that happened in May of 1987. You guys were getting closer to the 1990s. So close, yet so far away. And this is just, this one is just as fantastic and did about as much damage as the hyperbaric chamber did to his image. Uh, for years, Michael had been fascinated by a 1980 film about John Merrick, who was the Elephant Man, and that starred John Hurt. Did he just die?
3: He just, he just passed oh. in the last few days. Yeah. Yes, he, did.
2: he just passed away, right? It was recent, yeah. Yeah, it was very, very recent. Um, And apparently, he had a private screening of the film, and he stopped halfway through the entire film. And he would rewind it and watch it again. Now, for those who don't know, the Elephant Man was what we would consider today to be a sideshow freak. Um, that's not really a PC term anymore, I don't think. But of course, like these these sideshows still exist in certain pockets. But of course, you know, in the 1800s, it was what they would call entertainment. I mean, you had Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus, and you had other other circuses and sideshows that would happen. So. He was born in 1862 and died in 1890. The disorder from which Merrick suffered was long thought to be an extreme case of neurofibromatosis. Oh, cheese and crackers. There's a lot of medical words in this that I'm not good at, (laughs) but his deformities were probably the result of an extremely rare disease known as Protus syndrome. Merrick was confined to a workhouse at age 17 then he escaped four years later to join a freak show and you can google pictures of John Merrick um he you know he's got a lot of deformities and asymmetrical and things like that like I I really can't speak on I've seen his picture a couple of times I've seen well his his
3: his his face and and I guess his skull were like outsized for his body right correct yeah
2: and he had what appeared to be tumors and things like that
3: i, I think so so he would be like alongside jojo the dog face boy and stuff i mean like legit, le- really
2: yes no no you're legitimately correct yes he would be oh, damn like, you, Pete, like, you know like the the largest man in the world or the bearded lady and that kind of stuff he would be you know he would be displayed for lack of a better term
3: yeah and you go to some the circus ways- and, or, or fair or whatever and you pay a quarter and you get to go through the like you said quote but as I would call it at the time, the freak show, the freak tent. With the yeah. hall of oddities.
2: Yeah, yeah and, and here's the thing. Um, from what I understand, we look at it through a different lens now where it's like, oh, these people were um, not just vilified, but like shunned in a way, but they were making really good money. For the time, they would make a pretty, penny if you were in the right circus or if you're in the right show if you're in the correct side show you can make a lot of money i think the, the, guy, the guy who played tom thumb made like a crap ton of money
3: yeah but Barnum made yeah. more money so some of them made a lot of money and then some of them got you know hit in the taint by a basketball thrown by pete meravich
2: okay that's a thing but uh, anyway so jumping back to john merrick <laughs> i'll let you get this out of your system for some reason Michael saw a lot of himself in John Merrick. He was an outsider who was searching for love and acceptance. And Michael heard that the remains were kept in a glass case at the London Hospital Medical College. He wanted to see the 97-year-old skeleton. And of course, on a trip to England, he obtained a special permission pass to inspect the exhibit. The reason why he actually obtained special permission was because the attraction had become a tourist attraction because of the movie. So it was actually removed from public view after the movie's release. It just was like, it became too popular. The film made him too popular. So they were like, nope, we're we're a medical hospital. We, you know, we're a college, were we're a college. We have kids here that we're trying to teach. And so they took John Merrick's bones and hit him. So he actually got to see The bones. Michael told Frank that he would like to have the bones at the Havenhurst house. Frank told him to forget about it, but he literally saw a light bulb go off in Michael Jackson's eyes. Michael came up with the idea that he should make an offer to the hospital for the John Merrick exhibit just to see what kind of press it would generate. Frank told him that it was crazy, and then Michael just answered with, I know. So, Frank let it leak to the press that Michael was interested in buying John Merrick's remains, and most people's responses were that, what is he going to do with the skeleton? But true to form, the media was actually very interested in the story. This pop star who sleeps in a hyperbaric chamber wants to buy the elephant man's bones. How could that not cause a stir?
4: I think it's not like he's like a vampire or something.
2: Yeah, no, of course they didn't go through with it. They didn't actually make an offer at the time. And they really didn't see a reason to make an offer because it was just going to be a publicity stunt. But the media did their homework and found out that the hospital had not received an offer from them. And the general consensus is that they would not sell the elephant man's bones because that would be really tactless. So Michael figured, eh, why not make an actual offer? So Frank telephoned the hospital and made an offer of $100,000 for the bones. Hospital officials said that they were insulted. A representative from the hospital said, Indeed, he offered to buy it, but it would be for publicity, and I find it very unlikely that the medical college will be willing to sell it for cheap publicity reasons. Fair. Now, at the same time, the elders of the Jehovah's Witness Church in Woodland Hills began to pressure Michael again. They thought that, everything that he was doing in the press was causing him damage and in turn reflecting poorly on Jehovah's Witnesses. But Michael was becoming disenchanted with the church elders by this time, mainly because he didn't like to be told what to do. And truth be told, it's almost impossible to be a Jehovah's Witness and be an entertainer, even though we will see later that Prince actually does it. In the spring of 1987, Michael withdrew from the Jehovah's Witness. A letter from the headquarters in Brooklyn set out a press release stating that the organization no longer considered Michael to be one of the Jehovah's Witnesses witnesses oh wow Michael soon lost interest in the elephant man's bones at the same time uh the thing was I don't actually know if he wanted them just so he could have them or if he wanted them because he knew he couldn't have them Or if he just had a passing interest and thought, oh, this would be a great story. But in the end, he just kind of walked away from it. In a short time, according to the tabloid press, Michael asked Elizabeth Taylor to marry him and also convinced her to sleep in the hyperbaric chamber. He was convinced that the world would end in 1998. He refused to bathe in anything other than avion water. And he had seen John Lennon's ghost and the story about Bubbles never seemed to end. It's
4: got to be expensive bathing in Uh, avion water and nothing else.
2: Yeah, but okay, all of this was not real. (laughs) like michael never asked concept yeah yeah, michael michael never asked elizabeth taylor to marry him he never convinced her to sleep in the hyperbaric chamber because he didn't actually own it he wasn't convinced the world was in 1998 i don't think there's anything about avion water but
3: no 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 hold on go back to go back like 138 parts to like uh part four or five you mentioned that i'm almost sure that this is the second reference we've had to him only wanting to bathe in uh in, in some in some sort of expensive bottled water i don't remember exactly
2: which kind but i mean that seems it, it seems weird but like this was in a blurb of like things that like
3: you i i, I swear like like seriously in the, in the, in the first three four parts did he not like bathing in perrier or something like that
2: dude we're on we're on i've written 16 episodes of this podcast i'm not going to remember that <laughs>
3: Well, this, well, this may be an object lesson going forward.
2: Oh, yeah, well, <laughs> I'll keep, I'll start doing string theory, like a, just a, like a board in our, like in front of our TV. So while we're recording it, I can just look up and be like, did he actually, what did we cover in these? We're going to
4: need a bigger boat.
2: <laughs> we're going to need a bigger apartment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're going to need an apartment just for that. Yeah. Like an entire, just yeah, a, whole, a whole, whole unit. Yes. Each room will be just a new episode. But. The stories, the stories were for the most part fabricated, except for a name that you guys might think is familiar, which is Bubbles the Chimp. Yay, Bubbles. Let's talk about this monkey. Okay.
4: If I had a nickel for every time we said that on this podcast.
2: We'd have one nickel.
4: I'm sure there are other famous monkeys on the podcast. We'll have to go back to the catalog to be sure. Have fun.
2: I'll see you in like... all over it. (laughs) Now, Bubbles... The chimp was born in early 1983 in Austin, Texas, in a research facility that bred primates for animal testing. Shame on you. There are conflicting reports about how he came into Jackson's possessions. Many state that Jackson had purchased him when he was eight months old. The acquisition was said to be supervised by Bob Dunn, one of Hollywood's most famous suppliers and trainers of animals' films for photo shoots and advertisements. Bubbles was initially kept at the Jackson family home in Encino in Los Angeles, but was moved to Jackson's home, Neverland Ranch, which I don't think we get to until the next episode. So just hold Neverland in your brain. In so the Neverland 19- Ranch
4: isn't constructed yet. It's still.
2: Oh, no. See, uh, there's a whole history to Neverland Ranch. It. It was, okay. I think it was actually created in like the 1800s, but I okay. can't. I can't. But like, it's, it's the actual ranch. There's a, there's a
3: whole history. We'll meticulously go through it in 17 episodes. <laughs>
2: Shut up, it's 16 episodes, (laughs) don't be a drama queen. In 1988, he would sleep in a crib in Jackson's bedroom, use Jackson's toilet and ate Jackson's candy in the Neverland movie theater. By 2003, Bubbles had matured into a large and aggressive adult chimpanzee, which was unsuitable as a pet. Like many captive chimpanzees, he was sent to a California animal trainer and when the the animal trainer closed up their operation in 2004, Bubbles was moved to the Center for Great Apes, a sanctuary in Florida, where he has lived since 2005. At the 2005 Jackson trial, Jackson said that his chimpanzee helped with keeping his household clean. They would run around and he would help me clean the room. He would help me dust and clean the windows. Jackson's housekeeper's testified that they disapproved of the chimpanzee's behavior. One said she had to clean feces hurled at the bedroom wall and another described a chimpanzee tearing off its diaper before crawling into Jackson's bed. According to journalist Steve Huey, Bubbles formed a public perception of Jackson as a bizarre, eccentric, obsessed with recapturing his childhood. According to Robert Thompson, professor of popular culture at Syracuse University, and Jackson's acquisition of Bubbles was when the weirdness began to reach mythical proportions. Which fair Jackson and Bubbles bond, as well as Jackson's other alleged eccentricities, contributed to the media nicknaming him something that I know that we all remember, which was Wacko Jacko. Which I Jackson? don't remember that, but you don't remember that? No,
4: I. Know, I- I mean, oh yeah I feel like it happened but yeah i don't recall
2: see here's the thing i i remember them call i remember people calling him wacko jacko during his first trial so that's that's when i remember it coming really into our zeitgeist but yeah it's i remember it it's just not that early
4: i do think you enter a special club once you actually own a monkey like that's that's another tier
2: and jackson despised that nickname the media often focused on Bubbles rather than Jackson's music and published false stories, such as the allegations that Bubbles was not a single ape, but one of several. A later claim suggested that Bubbles had died. Jackson's press agent, Lee Soldiers, quipped to the media when Bubbles heard about his demise, he went bananas.
4: <laughs> Do we have a rim shot sound we can just throw in there?
2: I mean, <laughs> yeah, like Mark- Oh, he went absolutely <laughs> ape. Uh, like Mark Twain, his death was grossly exaggerated. He is alive and doing well. The media also reported that Bubbles would be the ring bearer at Elizabeth Taylor's October 6th, 1991 Neverland Rich wedding. And that report was untrue, but was according to the New York Times, an idea that some newspapers found too delightful not to report. <laughs> Another story reported in the National Enquirer claimed that the musician Prince, Jackson's longtime media-proclaimed rival, had used extrasensory perception to turn Bubbles crazy. According to the story, Jackson said, what kind of sicko would mess with a monkey? This is the final straw. Poor, poor Bubbles. Michael found the story hilarious. His staff reported that they've never seen him laugh so hard. The late 1980s were a busy time for Bubbles. Jackson took him on outings and would often talk to him. According to reports, he showed him how to moonwalk. Bubbles had an agent and was reported to have his own bodyguard. He sat in for the recording of the bad album. I can't do any of this with a straight, I'm talking about a grown man who owns a monkey.
4: And has a monkey, (laughs) yes.
2: I have three pages on this monkey.
4: And my favorite part is the press is manufacturing stories about said monkey. Yes. I mean, the Inquirer, sure, we expect that, you know, that's, but if like the Post is doing this. That's another that's another the, conversation altogether. And the
2: thing is, I don't know why Michael Jackson has a monkey. He never says why he got a monkey. He just,
4: I mean... he just
2: has one. <laughs>
4: it's like a cheap and um, box check. I don't know.
2: Yeah. So um, Jackson insisted that Bubbles and Jackson's pet snake attend as spectators while he was recording the Bad album and accompanied Jackson for the filming of the Bad music video. In the short film for Librarian Girl, Bubbles makes a cameo, a cameo appearance. When the Bad tour began in September of 1987, he and Michael shared a two-bedroom suite in Tokyo. During the tour, Bubbles and Jackson made a social <laughs> visit to the mayor of Osaka, Yasumi Oshima. Bubbles drank Japanese green tea, while seated next to Jackson. Are you telling me the
4: the monkey has a passport? (laughs) That's a valid question.
2: Oshima said that he and his fellow officials were surprised to see the chimpanzee, but we understood that he is Michael's good friend. That is the first time an animal has ever entered City Hall. Though allowed to travel to Japan, Bubbles was unable to enter Britain and Sweden due due to strict quarantine laws. Jackson also brought Bubbles for tea at Elizabeth Taylor's house. Taylor didn't mind that Jackson brought the chimpanzee. At a party to celebrate and promote bad, Bubbles purportedly worked the room and was the life of the party. This is
4: amazing. (laughs) This is absolutely (laughs) awesome.
2: Three pages on a monkey. (laughs) On a monkey
4: well you've had brushes with famous monkeys haven't you
2: i have i had a brush with like the famous monkey like not bubbles
4: no you've never met bubbles as far as i know
2: no um i have met crystal who was in night at the
4: museum the hangover too right wasn't she
2: i don't know if she I, i want to say yes but it's so cute to see crystal because she's a capuchin monkey so she stays little but it was so cute to see her on the red carpet with her little dress on it was adorable And she's the one who was smacking Ben door in the face, right? Yes. Yep. Um, Classic. So I was working a fun little side story about chimpanzees. I was working on a Dane Cook pilot, which never got released, but I was standing in for one of the girls that was on the show. And there was the pilot episode had him getting a monkey to impress women. And so they brought the monkey on and it was the famous monkey, Crystal. And- so I wanted a picture with Crystal. So uh, her handler let Crystal jump on my head. And I was about to hand my phone to someone to take a photo of me and the monkey. So I handed my phone. As I'm passing the phone, Crystal reaches down, steals my phone and starts picking at the numbers. And so she, she's picking and picking and picking. She pulls the number nine straight off of the phone and puts it in her mouth and then spits it back out. See, what everyone
4: has to understand is this is a time when cell phones actually had physical number keys, yeah.
2: They had number keys and she was pulling it out. Then she took the whole phone and just put the whole... as much of the phone that she could in her mouth. And I'm like, what is happening right now? <laughs> and her her trainer was like, oh, monkeys love salt. And so as you're talking on your phone, the salt builds up in the buttons and that's what she likes. She's trying to get the salt out of the buttons. So she has pulled the nine button off and now there are all these scratches all over the thing. So I take the phone to Sprint and I'm like, hey, quick question, can I get a replacement phone? And they're like, yeah, what happened to this phone? And I just looked at them and I went, I dropped um, it. No, so I actually went, um, um, uh, okay. A monkey ate it. And there was like dead silence for a minute. And they just, how they're like, are you serious? I'm like, yeah, a monkey ate it. Do you have like any proof? And I took, I had the picture of the monkey of me and the monkey on my phone. And it was like three, you know, three days prior or whatever. And they replaced my phone for free, which was at the time. Shocking, but they replaced the phone for free because they said they had literally never heard that story before. And the
4: and that launched Sprint's little-known monkey liability policy. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, everyone. That was but, my fault. Yeah, can you imagine? Do you have monkey coverage on your phone?
2: <laughs> so around this time, Bubbles and Jackson were photographed by Kenny Rogers for his book Your Friends and Mine. The photo shows Bubble held on Jackson's hip, as being cited as one of the best taken of Jackson. In the black and white photograph, Bubbles is dressed casually. In a long sleeve shirt and overalls. Jackson is also dressed casually. He's wearing jeans and a shirt, just like a normal shirt. Roger said that Bubbles was so human, it was almost frightening. He could take Christopher by the hand and walk over to the refrigerator, open it, take out a banana, and hand it to him, and Christopher was amazed. We all were. According to David Wigg, Queen singer Freddie Mercury grew frustrated while trying to record a duet with Michael because... There must have been more to life than this because of his insistence that Bubbles be in the studio. According to Wig, Michaels made Bubbles sit between them and would turn to the chimp during takes and ask, don't you think that was lovely? Or do you think we should do it again? After a few days of this, Freddie exploded. I'm not, (laughs) okay, language warning guys. He screamed, I am not performing with a fucking chimp sitting next to me each night. Mercury left the project and released the song as a solo artist in 1985. The duet with Jackson was not released until until Queen members Brian May and Roger Taylor discovered it and including it on the album and included it on the album Queen Forever in 2014. So there you go. Because Freddie
4: Mercury didn't want to record with a monkey.
2: (laughs) We didn't get that song for like 20 years because Freddie did not want to record with a monkey. It sounded like
4: he was always like another engineer. Like, how were those levels, you know, Bubbles?
2: Okay, so now we've got the Hyperbaric Chamber, the Elephant Man Bones, the the feud with Elizabeth Taylor and Diana Ross, Bubbles the Chimp out of the way. Do we have any more crazy things to talk about this year? No? Okay. So let's talk about the album, Bad.
4: Yes.
2: The song is actually about the street. It's about a kid from a bad neighborhood who goes away to a private school and then comes back to his old neighborhood when he's on a break. And the kids from the neighborhood start giving him trouble. For those who don't know, the music video for bad is actually a short film. And Michael will start making a lot of these over the next couple of years. Like there will be a story element, there will be dialogue, there will be, you know, a beginning, a middle, and end. It's not just images, it's not just performances. It's something. More. So the short film For Bad premiered in a TV special, Michael Jackson The Magic Returns on CBS Primetime on August 31st, 1987. This was directed by Martin Scorsese and co starred Wesley Snipes in one of his first appearances. It's crazy. Yeah. The video, inspired part by the film West Side Story, shows Jackson and a group of gangsters portraying a street gang dancing in a subway station. Set at the Hoyt Schirmerhorn. Station that I have no idea. I don't even no, know no, you nailed it. Shermerhorn. Sherman Ball It has been praised by critics as one of the most iconic and greatest videos of all time. fully great, not gonna fight that. Michael Jackson.
3: How- aside. I-, I wonder how many major actors got their start in music videos.
2: I mean, I know for a fact that Courtney Cox was dancing in the dark. Yeah. And Silverstone, too. And then Evan Rachel Wood already had sort of a career, but uh, doing Wake Me Up When September Ends was a big thing. I think the
3: first time anybody ever saw Matthew McConaughey was in um, the Trisha Yearwood, Don Henley song, Walk Away, Joe. The um, video for
2: I, that. Actually, uh, I can tell you the very first time I saw Matthew McConaughey, which was in an episode of Unsolved Mysteries. What about uh, Bill Paxton and what is it? Shadows of the Night? Yeah, which uh, also Pat Benatar was the first music video to have dialogue. Right. Correct. Which was, no, no we are young. Honey, too, honey. Wasted. We said. Love is a, Love is
4: a battlefield. Yeah. There it is. Thank Love you. Love
2: is a battlefield. <clears throat> that was the first music video to ever have dialogue. So, you know, and then that's the thing is like, we're still in the 1980s. We're still finding our footing with music videos. And they're becoming a tool, not just like, let me show this video of us performing on MTV. It's let's make this something important and magical and let's have a you know, theme or let's have a message that we can get out there. And Michael was really like one of the ones that embraced that idea fully where he's like, let's do this whole hog. We're gonna, we're gonna make this a, a massive event. And it was Michael Jackson's music videos were events, like you set an alarm for. Them. I remember watching Black or White the first time it came out. I remember was huge Ooh, Criminal, and we'll get to all those. Don't worry. Other than it being touted as one of the greatest music videos of all time, Jackson's outfit has been recognized as an influence on fashion. In a 1988 review with Ebony and Jet magazine, Michael said that he was inspired by a true story that he had read about in either Time or Newsweek. He had stated that there was a story about a student who went to upstate New York, who was, you know, quote unquote, from the ghetto. He tried to make something of his life and had planned to leave all of his friends behind when he returned for Thanksgiving break. He added that the student's friend's jealousy resulted in them killing the student. Jackson stated that the student's death was not included in the music video. Various Jackson biographers have concluded that the story that he was referring to was that of Edmund Perry. However, Perry was not killed by the kids in his neighborhood. He was actually killed by a plainclothes police officer when Perry and his brother allegedly attacked and badly beat the officer in a mugging attempt. The full music video for Bad is an 18-minute musical short film written by the novelist and screenwriter Richard Price and shot by Michael Champion and directed by Martin Scorsese. Michael, when he's making these things, he just gets the best. You want to make a 18-minute video for <laughs> Captain EO for Disney? Get George Lucas on the horn. Hmm. You know, you want to make one for this music video for the song that you're releasing? Martin Scorsese, you know, the guy who did Goodfellas and just like every awesome and hyper-violent movie other than Quentin Tarantino in the world. Yeah, get that guy. He's amazing. And it's true. It is such a good music video. And probably I'll post that on our social media too, because I feel like you guys need to see Captain Neo and Bat. The video was shot in Brooklyn over a six-week period. It took six weeks to do this music video. To do a
3: music video. Just a long time, yeah. No, i was shot- like That's like doing a podcast for seven months on somebody.
2: I can't imagine anyone doing that. <laughs> If you guys haven't figured out, we're getting a little punchy talking about Michael Jackson.
4: (laughs) To be fair, it's Michael Jackson, the man who was the king of pop. It's not like Dexie's Midnight Runners for 40 episodes. Boo.
3: (laughs) We kid because we love and because we're tired.
2: Yes. Yep. So the video has, so it was shot over a six week period. By the way, I have actually shot several full length feature films in two weeks. I shot a film that, um, I I worked on a film, I should say, I worked on a film that is going through like the award circuit right now called balloon animal. And it's massive. I can't like, if you can, if you get a chance to see it, I'm, I'm just saying, I, I was a PA on the film, go watch it. It's really good. We shot that in two weeks and it's beautiful and has a great story that that whole film was an hour and a half. This is 17 minutes and it took six weeks to shoot it in November and December of 1986. The video has many references to the 1961 film West Side Story, especially the cool sequence. The video uses a different version of the song as opposed to the commercially released version. This version uses a different organ solo in the middle and hasn't been commercially released as of yet. I guess they were going to perform a criminal tango just like Manfred Mann's Earth Band did in 1986 when they dropped Critical Tango with the track going underground. <laughs> <laughs> I've I wanted to work in Criminal Tango underground since, you know, it was Manfred Mann and and they were underground because they were in the subway. That was a good one. I, I was concerned we weren't going to get there, but we we got it. We got, we got it. We got no, it. That was Who's good. Do it? No, that Who's was good. No,
3: you, you worked, okay. you worked that in fairly seamlessly. Actually, that was, that was actually, that was nice. You did good. Thank you. Someone's got to do it. Someone's got to do it. And do it. In having, and in having, and, and in having done so, ladies and gentlemen, our federally mandated Manfred Mann's Earth Band reference of the
2: podcast has been settled. Federal- <laughs> If I ever have just like extra time on my hands, I am going to just release an episode of us doing the Manford Man's reference of the podcast.
3: (laughs) Just over and over. That would be epic.
2: Just every time it was ever said, just listen to the progression of it. (laughs) Uh, maybe I'll do that as our Christmas episode, guys. Um So, all right, in the music video, Jackson portrays a teenager named Daryl who has just completed a term in an expensive private school. He returns to the city and takes the subway b- back to his neglected neighborhood. Daryl finds his home is empty, where he is greeted by his old friends. The leader of the group is Minnie Max, which was played by an unknown Wesley Snipes. Like He hadn't really done anything by this point. This was his first real big break. At first, relations are friendly, but slightly awkward. Then the situation begins to deteriorate as the gang starts to realize how much Daryl has changed. This is especially noticed by how uncomfortable he has become with their criminal activities. Daryl takes the gang to the subway station in an attempt to show his friends that he is still bad by robbing an elderly man. He has a change of heart at the last minute, and Minnie Max chastises him, telling Daryl he is no longer bad. After more disrespect from Minimax, the video cuts to Daryl and a group of street kids dancing while Daryl is seen performing bad. Daryl insists that Max is headed for a fall, which is nearly Daryl's undoing. Eventually, Minimax accepts that after all of that, a final handshake, he leaves Daryl in peace. At the end of the video, Daryl is left alone watching his gang leave. The video was not commercially released until it was included in the video albums, Video's Greatest Hits, His Story, long version on DVD, and short version VHS. Number one short versions and Michael Jackson's Vision. And uh, apparently Target also put out a version of the DVD, Bad 25 Short Version. The full video won awards at various prestigious award ceremony, including the favorite single Soul R&B at the American Music Awards and the biggest selling album by a male soloist in the UK from the Guinness Book of World Records. The video has been praised by critics as one of the most iconic and greatest f- videos of all time. Jackson's outfit is a massive influence still. In fashion. It's one of those ones that anytime somebody parodies Michael Jackson, you keep that in your repertoire. Like that goes in your, like that and the, the pleather red jacket from Thriller and his knee pad. Like that's, if you are a Michael Jackson impersonator, that is just something that's got to be in your closet.
4: And we all full well know that there is a standout parody that we all know who that artist is who did an exemplary job of that.
2: Yes. So after Jackson's death in June of 2009, Latita James of the New York City Council began trying to convince the agency to rename or co-name the Hoyt-Shermerhorn Street Station or to at least hang a plaque at the station in Jackson's honor. However, her request was denied by the Metropolitan Transportation Authority in September of 2009. James commented, Having Michael Jackson visit and moonwalk at the station is a huge deal, not only for Brooklynites, but all of New York in the 1980s, and renaming the station in his honor would have put it on the map and ensured that people don't forget. A source from the MTA commented that no subway stations in the MTA system are named or co-named after individuals mostly because it confuses writers. The MTA also declined to put up a plaque in the station due to MTA guidelines preventing and forbidding such a thing. And I think that that's where we're going to leave off this week. I know we didn't get very far in the making of B.A.D., but at this point, that is pretty much par for the course. So um, we will pick back up with the rest of the album. And the rest of the songs from "Bad" from Michael's per- perspective, but I think yeah. this is a place to close it off for the week.
3: Yeah, um, and, and yeah, we were talking a minute ago about uh, actors who made their debut sort of in music videos. I actually thought of another one. Oh yeah, yeah. Like I think we it all it, it evaded all of us that uh, the great Jessica Tandy uh, made her debut to the world in the uh, video for "Debut." <laughs> I I'm gonna fact check that one. EU's that butt. Directed by Spike Lee. Uh-huh.
2: Okay. Um I'm just gonna give out our socials. <laughs> and uh
3: <laughs> Jessica Tandy was dancer number three in that butt. <laughs>
2: Jessica tandy I know that you've passed several years ago, but oh, I'm just
3: going to go ahead and say I'm <laughs> sorry. And to- we remember, and uh, we we honor you for your work in <laughs>
4: <laughs> Wow. And DJ is gone. Bye bye. Yep.
2: So anyway, does anyone have anything you know worth contributing?
4: Well, I, I did realize <sighs> we passed over. Uh, we we missed someone who who passed on since our last episode. Oh, uh, who was that? that would be Scott Hall best known by his WWE persona Razor Ramon
2: That is right yes, That is right He passed
4: away um,
2: last week I believe Yeah and I, every, everything I've read just tells me that he's a great guy like he Seems was just a yeah. yeah, just a good guy we uh, that one so Yeah oh and uh, I will say I did get a uh, I started a new job and so this new should be, this is should be fun for people Uh, if you are in the Los Angeles area and you are between the ages of 21 and 40 and can grab a partner, come apply for Pictionary, the, you know, the amazing game that we all used to play at home. They give you those little pads and the little pencils and you, the pencils and you'd always lose the pencils. Well, this is, uh, the live version of that, but they use computers and it's awesome. And it's hosted by Jerry O'Connell. So if you think that uh, you could win, you should apply. Uh, Again, we're looking for people that are between the ages of 21 and 40, live in the Los Angeles area or within driving distance of Los Angeles, and who can grab a partner and have a blast playing games with a celebrity. You get paired up with a celebrity, which is awesome. And they help you along the way. And one of the celebrities that we actually got to watch the episode was Greg Grungberg from Star Wars and Heroes. And he's just awesome. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. So there's a rotating cast of amazing celebrities that you can get paired up with and you can win cash and prizes. And uh, the big thing is a dream vacation, which don't we all need that now. So uh, if you're interested, you can email me at PictionaryCasting at gmail.com. And I will hook you up with how to apply for the show. So again, that's PictionaryCasting at gmail.com. Other than that, our other social stuff is that if you would like to give us money, you can do so at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. You can check out our Twitter at rock and roll LT. Our Instagram is rock and roll heaven LT uh absolutely come hang out with us on facebook we're having a good time over there that's uh our facebook is rock and roll heaven pod still not saying our website and you guys absolutely please come check us out at tiktok we're trying to get pushed over that 30 subscriber mark
3: We have. although you do put the links to it on uh facebook too right
2: yeah we we do it on facebook and instagram they get shared on facebook and instagram but we definitely are we would love some more interaction on those videos because
3: we, we would. And there's one thing I do as a reflection of this episode that does kind of stick out. You remember when wacky antics, like actually got like a lot of attention stories like, Oh, he wanted to buy the elephant man's bones. Oh my God. Uh, yeah, Van Halen, uh, you know, doesn't has some writer about Brown MMs and and they will trash their dressing rooms and they've got paternity insurance and like these, stories like this a lot of which were manufactured would get an amazing amount of attention like now everybody would just be like "Hmm." (laughs) oh yeah we're so we're so numb to all this stuff now that that this stuff wouldn't even even move the needle anymore but in the 1980s it sure did
2: well yeah well because now we've got because these people were thrust into the public consciousness by their behavior Now we've got something like TikTok. And I guarantee you, I can scroll through TikTok and it's less than 10 videos and someone's doing something stupid. Someone's doing something that you're just like, yeah, Darwin's going to take you out eventually. Like the milk crate challenge or the cinnamon chat. Like people just do stupid stuff now and they put it online. So that we are totally desensitized by. But but I mean, like
3: Bobby Brown wrote a book where he said he had sex with a succubus or something. And then people are like, huh? well wow. okay <laughs> like that uh, uh, table got cared way more than he said he'd had sex with madonna and i'm like re- really that's the
2: bigger story here i think i think we are just as a society just kind of over i mean the government admitted that there are ufos and we're like so <laughs> yeah,
4: they, they caught us in a busy time to be fair
2: <laughs> like aliens could literally land in Times square whatever
3: All Right. We'd be like, "Oh, wow, that's uh, that's really something." Uh, did the Browns uh complete that trade for Deshaun Watson? That yeah. that, that would pretty much be my response.
2: Yeah. Yeah, TikTok. but that's no.
3: But I was just saying that's 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 pretty much we that, that I like that this it seems so quaint now, but I actually enjoyed that these were big stories and yeah these these rumors that lingered forever and now literally we have a not big now but former pop former big pop star saying. He had sex with a ghost. And we're just like,
2: oh, wow. Well, okay. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: So It's very telling that down? he said in the same book, he had sex with Madonna and a ghost, and people were way more jazzed about Madonna.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, if you want, want to listen to fun facts about Bobby Brown sleeping with a succubus, you can check that out at TikTok. At rock and roll heaven pod <laughs> and um please uh, also if you uh, have anything that you would like to say to us privately you can email us at rock and roll heaven at lt at rock and roll heaven lt at gmail.com and please make sure to check out all the other awesome pantheon podcasts at pantheonpodcast.com if i said these things too fast they will be in the show notes along with the email if you want to audition for pictionary that's up and I think that's just about it. Do you guys have anything you... Oh, oh I do need to add uh, one other little fact about Bubbles that I didn't include on this is that to this day, Bubbles the chimp is actually still alive. So he outlived Michael, huh? By, by, by a, a long shot, yeah. Uh, over a decade. <laughs> Country mile, how, 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 the, old,
3: how old is Bubbles and how old do chimps typically live to be?
2: That's a good I know he was born in nineteen eighty three so he's almost forty year
3: oh wow Jeez.
2: yeah well, chim- like, the thing is like chimps can get i think they're they can get pretty old I think they get to be let me let me look it up let me see how long do chimps usually live uh, very specific this is fifty nine years okay so he's
4: got a little little ways to go
2: the highest observed chimpanzees he- Chimpanzees, also simply known as chimps, is a species of great ape native to the forest and savanna of tropical Africa. It has four confirmed species, and it technically is endangered. But yeah, roughly 59 years. He's, chimp he's, is endangered. Wow. Yeah, he's a little older, I guess. He's on the older side. <laughs> but yeah, still alive. So um, Will, what is your takeaway from this episode?
4: I mean, there's so much that we reviewed revolving involving the monkey um, that I feel like that stood out. But again, I think a lot of this is sort of being drummed up by the press and it's going to fuel, I think, Michael Jackson's behavior in the years to come, the way he does become reclusive, the way he does shun the media. And they were seeing a lot of the seeds for what's going to happen in the next decade.
2: Yes. DJ.
3: Uh, pretty much had my face.
2: Okay. Fair enough. Well, it's interesting to know, like these things that a lot of people have been like, Oh, he's so crazy. He sleeps in a hyperbaric chamber at night or, oh, he's going to marry Elizabeth Taylor. Oh, he, you know, he does this, he does it. He was actually behind it, kind of controlling the narrative and, and, and you know, steering the machine. And that's what my, my takeaway was that I thought was really interesting that we think like, oh my gosh, you know, who would have come up with this stuff? It was actually Michael. <laughs> like kind of pulling the strings, the strings the whole time because he wanted to be P.T. Barnum which is uh, smart. Keep your name it's in the chill. press. Yeah. No, no. What is it? Any press is good press. Any publicity is good publicity. Any publicity is good publicity. You are correct, sir. All right. Well, on that note, I do believe that we are going to close out today's episode with the title track, since we actually already talked about it. We will close out with the title track from the album, Bad, Here is the shorter version of Bad. Bad, buddy. All right, TJ, thank you. Uh, Mr. Will the Thrill, would you like to say something to our audience? Uh,
4: Yes, thank you for joining us and we will see you on the next one as we continue our odyssey of Michael Jackson.
2: (laughs) All right, guys, have a great one. We'll see you next week. Here is Michael Jackson with the title track, Bad.